Now, a number of people I've spoken to recently, Christians and non-Christians, I have to say, who really are, are, are trying to say that you will only really belong once you kind of look deep enough within yourself and get comfortable with yourself. It's like there's a sofa deep within us. And, and people think, if I could just find that sofa to lie on in here, I just can't seem to find it. But here's the problem. That relies on you being totally satisfied in you to be satisfied and find belonging. And that is a, a painful, cyclical, impossible journey. In fact, we think that that journey is in completely the wrong direction. And we've been trying to explain that over these last few weeks as we've been going through the second letter that Peter writes to these Christians scattered across what is now modern-day Turkey. And what Peter wants us to know is that there is a place being prepared where you belong. More than any other place. A place where you're made to dwell. It's where you will finally completely feel at home. No reservation, no nagging feeling of there being more to find. And at the heart of the reason is this, and this is what we're going to see explained today, that it's a home of righteousness. Righteousness is what we all need, whether we know it or not. Most of you might even just be thinking right now, man, home of righteousness, mate, what are you on about? <laughs> that sounds so weird. Where would you get that title from the 1600s? Home of righteousness. And I think that is a reflection of the trappings of our post-Christian culture, which says to us somehow that the most wonderful, exciting, beautiful, fulfilling, meaningful things that could ever possibly exist have somehow been portrayed in a dull religious way. Righteousness is everything you need. And it's beautiful and glorious and we need to recapture it. Recapture what it means to live a life of holiness, to finally be yourself. We need righteousness. When we boil it all down, to dwell in righteousness is to be all that God has made you to be in the place that he's made you for. One theologian once put it this way, it is the state of him or her, of course, who is such as he ought to be. Verse 1 of chapter 3, which Leah is about to come and read for us, reminds us that Peter is actually writing to friends here. And that's what we see again and again and again in the Bible. Like they're writing to people they love, reflected in God's love for them. God loves these people. And Peter has picked that love up. And so as we hear this read by Leah, can I just encourage you? Can you receive what is being read in the knowledge that it is being revealed to you because God loves you? Like We're not just reading the Word of God because we, we think that it's the right thing to do, it's traditional. No, no, we, we, we're, we're reading this out because God loves you, because God cares about you, because he wants to speak with you today, because he wants to get into your heart and help you to find where you truly belong. 
Leah, come. Read for us, please. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming you promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the word, the world of the time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done, and it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and un unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. People were laughing. Even in the church, they were laughing. Where is this so-called return? Ha! Half the people who preached this thing, who said that this was going to be an imminent return, have died. So what's going on? What's happened? Did Jesus miss the bus from heaven to earth? Look. Look around. Jesus hasn't changed your existence. It's all the same. Day in and day out, it's the same as it's always been. They were laughing. Wondering, will this promise ever come true? It doesn't look like it. Do you anticipate Jesus' return? Is that a regular thought you have? Do you have an anticipation of the moment that Jesus comes to make all things right? Do you realize every moment will either be vindicated or condemned when he appears? Peter was saying, don't be fooled by your current surroundings and the voices that you are hearing. It's actually a sign that the last days are here. 
the last days that he describes in verse 3. Because this isn't a reference to a future period, but it's a reference to the fact that false teachers are here and the last days must, therefore, be here. And these false teachers that Lewis was talking about last week in chapter 2 are this proof. And really, we can say the last days began at Jesus' ascension. So when he makes, when he ascends into heaven and his appearing, his first appearing is, is over, his first coming, we are waiting really. We're in a waiting state for him to return, to bring us home. We're in the last days. So Peter says, let me remind you, verse 2, of the Old Testament prophets and commands of the apostles. Because they speak with absolute certainty about the Messiah's return to reign in righteousness. And by the way, it's kind of worth noting here. Peter speaks of the New Testament apostolic authority in equal authority to the Old Testament. Do you notice that? He seems to be saying, look, I want to remind you, there is an authority here, yes, from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, but actually, it's not just the law and the prophets, there is this revelation through the apostles that has come, and we now know it as the New Testament. You can trust what God has revealed to the apostles. Now, perhaps they would be thinking of texts like Isaiah 32, when Peter says this to them, when it's read out before each church. And that says, look, see, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. God has spoken, and when God speaks, we know that it will come true. You can trust it. I remember um, when I was playing rugby, a long time ago now, sadly, I was, um, I was always amazed that at the beginning of every single game, no matter who we were playing against, there was some glorious speech made by someone about how we're going to win this game. I mean, we could be playing against the All Blacks, we're going to get beaten by hundreds of points, and they would still make this extraordinary bluster of a speech that is just so full of passion, and everyone at the end goes, yeah, come on! And you run out onto the pitch, and then you get absolutely battered. The Word of God is not like that. Okay, so when we come and we hear the Word of God, we are not coming to it like we come to other voices. We're not coming to it like we come to anything else that we're taught in life. Even the things that we might think are pretty much 100% true. Because the Word of God is so much more reliable than anything else. And so in verses 5 to 7, Peter gets a bit more specific about what's coming and why we can trust, why these guys can trust and why we can trust that it could happen again, it will happen again in a new way. First of all, he talks about creation. God has already created, he's spoken into creation anything that you see. In fact, you would not exist without him. 
And so these scoffers, these people who are laughing at this thing, he's saying, look, you wouldn't even exist without God. He has created, and his point, not only has he created, he will come and recreate. When he returns, he will recreate all things and make all things new. And then he talks about Noah. He says, don't you remember Noah? That wicked generation. And the only one who was righteous were Noah and his family. The only ones who were pursuing righteousness. The only ones who had put their trust in God. And they were saved through the ark. And judgment came by waters. He said, remember that? Well, that happened because God spoke. And when God speaks, it happens. God has created all things, but he's also shown that he is a true and righteous judge who will come and make sure that justice is done. And so we can expect that he's going to recreate when he returns, but he will also judge. This judgment and this new creation, we need it. We need it desperately. Sometimes I think we look around and we're, we're happy to kind of blind ourselves to some of the things that are not righteous on the, on the earth, that are not righteous around us, that are not just and true and good. So much so that we say, well, is there any need for judgment? Yes, there is. Lewis dealt with the necessity of judgment last week. But as Peter does here, let's remember that that judgment is the gateway to righteousness. If we want to truly belong, if we want to know what it really means to be home, we need judgment. The world needs the judgment of a righteous judge to rid the earth of its great big problem, sin. And this time the judgment and the new creation will bring about a home of righteousness. And will come when Jesus returns to judge and recreate, not by water this time, but by fire. See that in verse 7? And Peter says the very reason that Jesus has not returned yet is that actually God is patiently waiting for people like the scoffers to repent, to turn from their self-righteous ways and trust Jesus for righteousness. The gateway to righteousness is justice, and justice has come through Jesus' substitution for us on the cross. The only righteous one became sin for us so that we could receive the righteousness of God instead of his judgment. Hallelujah! What do you see when you look at Glasgow? When you wander around the streets and you see Glasgow's people, what do you see? I think God looks out on this city like he did on Jerusalem. When Jesus was sitting over Jerusalem and he wept. His desire is that all would repent. That all would turn from their evil ways. Now you might not be comfortable with that word. But all that really means is to live a life that is in contradiction to the goodness of God. And is that not what everyone is doing? 
Paul says it in 2 Timothy, that, he desi- that God desires all to be saved. Out of his great mercy and love, he wants everyone to turn from their old ways, turn to Jesus and come home. His love and grace is offered to all. Now, let me address a big question that maybe some of you have. There is a mystery and a seeming paradox beyond our understanding at play in Peter's letters. He calls these scattered Christians elect exiles and later chosen people in his first book. The implication being that we can't change our own hearts. We need God to intervene and change us. We need him to come and choose. And yet here, Peter says, God desires all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all to be saved. Few concepts generate more confusion than the will of God. Okay? We're not going to work it all out here. But we can hopefully help one another here. It can be helpful to consider God to have two wills. I'm going to be careful and explain why I don't think that's always the right thing. But it can be helpful. A perceptive will and a decretive will, or a permissive will and a perfect will, where God will allow things that he is displeased with for a greater purpose. Theologian John Frame put it this way, God does not intend to bring about everything he values, but he never fails to bring about what he intends. In other words, God is always in control. He's sovereign. He does rule and reign. Yet, the type of rule and reign, the kind of perfect rule and reign that we cannot wait for, that's not arrived yet. That righteousness that will reign, where nothing is tainted by sin. But right now, God is still in control. He's permitting that things would happen that he is not pleased with by his perfect will. But within all of that, he never takes a tea break. He never turns a blind eye. God is always in control. Otherwise, he is not God. One thing we can say is that God's perfect will is where righteousness reigns. And that when Jesus returns, it will be established forever without the need to utter anything about a permissive will or theological theories that can't help but trip themselves up. So those two wills kind of worked, gives us a framework, but don't get hung up on it because there's mystery there and we have to be happy to sit in the mystery sometimes. To us, Jesus' return is taking a long time. It was already taking a long time to these guys in the first century. I remember I used to stare at um, the clock in my primary school class, and it seemed to take a very, very long time to get to playtime. And I could run out onto the football pitch, which I lived for. I mean, all day at primary school, I'm just daydreaming about what I'm going to do next, what step over, I'm going to hit that in the top corner, come on. And we get out onto the ash pitch. 
we all had ash pitches back then, grazing knees everywhere. And it was just no point in school for me other than that. And I remember staring at that clock when I was supposed to be doing my maths, just thinking, this is taking so long. Now today, time just seems to go so fast. It's unbelievable. Sometimes I think I'm 22 and I have to like remind myself I'm approaching 40. It just goes... And in the same way, similar to that, in the same way that we can have different perspectives on time, but we know it's being measured the same way. It can feel different. Actually, God's perspective on time is entirely different from ours. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. And at the end of that wait, our final destination is a new creation. Now, sometimes people get a bit confused here and think, well, hang on, aren't we going to heaven? Okay, yes, but actually, in the end, what we're really looking for, when it will really be complete, the heavens and the earth will unite in a new creation. And that's what we're really, that's what our real goal is. That's where the, the end goal is. The whole thing will end up in this glorious new creation. A creation that will be better than we can ever imagine. Eclipsing the beauty we see with far more wonderful things. Things that we cannot even begin to imagine. The earth itself is groaning for this new creation, a recreation. It says in the, uh, Paul says in his letter to the Romans. And we are the first fruits of it. Our redeemed bodies. Some of you I've been talking to this morning have got health complaints. They will be gone. Praise God. They'll be gone. And you'll be one of the first fruits of this new creation. And you'll have the full use of your body as it was made to be. In Isaiah 65, the prophet describes this new creation and what it will do to us. He says, we won't remember the former frustrations, but we'll be full of gladness rejoicing and joy. A home of righteousness. It's not Boringsville. Don't see it through the eyes of this post-Christian culture that thinks that a word like righteousness is somehow boring. A home of righteousness is where we all want to be. It's where we need to be. There's nowhere better because we'll be home with God. So Peter, once we get to verse 14, starts to ask the questions of kind of like, so what? What do we do now? What's the response to this? If everything is going to be destroyed and remade, well, <laughs> how do we live now? What's the point in trying so hard? I mean, if that's going to be the result anyway, should we, you know, just stop caring about people? Stop caring about the world around us in which we live? Just do what we like? Or should we just sit tight, hide away? Should we build ourselves a little nuclear bunker in the garden? Get some tins of your favourite fruit? Stock them up? Hold tight till Jesus returns? No, says Peter, quite the opposite. He says, be holy and blameless. Live a life of holiness. The passage we read earlier in Isaiah 32 continues this way into verse 2. 
Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then noticing something in verse 12 here, Peter says we can actually speed his return by living lives like that. What does he mean by that? Well, if God's people live holy and blameless lives, in some ways, we can contribute to him coming back again sooner. What? Why would it say that? Well, when God's people are seeking to establish a, a kind of tent of righteousness, if you like, on the way to the, our home of righteousness, on their journey home, and we gather with others around us who are doing the same thing, we shine with something of God's dazzling glory by the way that we live and the way that we share this good news about Jesus. Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew 5. You are a light of the world, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others and they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So no, we don't hide away. In fact, we get really visible. Verse 13 says that we get visible as we look forward towards this new heaven and new earth. We are to be ambassadors to represent, to be forerunners of what is to come in the new creation. And actually when we do that, more people will turn to Jesus and glorify him. And we speed his return. It's a call to be what Jesus has made you to be. It's a glimpse of his coming glory. And what a privilege it is that we, you and I, let's get this in our hearts and our heads. We represent his glory. You made a commitment to follow Jesus. Well, the more and more that you want to live this life of righteousness, which reflects something of what's to come, you show off God. You show off his goodness. It's important that we pursue our life of holiness, not just for our own benefit. Sometimes I feel as though we we talk about quiet times and we talk about disciplines as if it's just for us. It's not just for us. It's for Glasgow. It's for Scotland. It's for the glory of God. Be what Jesus has made you to be. To do that, you're going to have to do what Peter keeps repeating. Don't forget God's words. It's more true and reliable than any other words. A rabbi once described God's word as hyphens between heaven and earth. To find home, we need God's word believed and lived out. It isn't comforting. It is comforting. That's what I meant to say. That even the apostle Peter, the rock Jesus builds his church upon, I find this enormously comforting. Wait for it. He finds Paul's teachings difficult to understand. Isn't that comforting? (laughs) I sometimes find Paul's teachings difficult to understand. 
But his point isn't that they're just difficult to understand. His point is that whatever you do, don't get lax with the Bible. Don't let something like that be your excuse. Don't allow people to twist and distort what the Bible actually says. I'm told this word distort in verse 16 means to dislocate, to remove it from its proper place for your own desire. To meet your own ways and beliefs with a pulling apart of God's word instead of submitting to his word. And what happens here is people think that they are free and helping others to find freedom in staying true to them as they read scripture. But actually that so-called freedom is leading people to an enslavement to self not truly to Jesus. So it's a false Jesus. It's a false word. Let's be very careful not to dislocate God's word from, from its context. To just pull it out and make it believe what we want it to believe. Because that is what will cause us to slip. It will cause us to, to fall from that steady place with Jesus. Freedom and home comes when you find righteousness, and righteousness is only found in Jesus by his grace. You want freedom? You want to find your true home? You need righteousness. And we can only find righteousness in one place. Through faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who died in our place. Swapping our sin for his righteousness. And as we wait for him to come and perfect us and all of creation to establish this new home of righteousness, we need to cling to the word of God. His word that leads us to grace and love and acceptance, not by our own efforts, but as a gift. Cling to the word of God that frees you from this horrible trap of trying to find yourself when only Jesus can find you. You'll find yourself when Jesus finds you. Be vigilant. Has something, someone convinced you that it is not worth taking God's word seriously? That it's not worth taking time to set aside to go and read it daily and have, it, have your heart transformed by it? Have your thinking transformed by it? Has someone convinced you that even the preaching of God's word shouldn't be a more important weekly routine for you and your family here than any other routine that you have taking place on a weekly basis? If we want to know ourselves, if we want to find home, it, then we need the Word of God. It's as vital as rain or sun to a growing plant. Verse 18 says, Grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus. It's a command. You can do something about it. Notice Peter's finish to the letter. Be glory to Jesus both now 
and forever. Glory to him now while it's a struggle, while we need to cling to the word of God, and glory to him when our bodies and everything around us is perfected in this glorious new creation that we can't wait for, that we're anticipating, that we're looking forward to, that is our life's goal. Our home of righteousness is being prepared. It will come. You will one day fully belong. And in the meantime, we get to be the people of home, representatives and forerunners of a kingdom to come, of the place everyone truly desires to be. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way, I am convinced that the universe is under the control of a loving purpose and that in the struggle for righteousness, man has cosmic companionship. God is with you. He is with you. Cling to his word and let his spirit guide you.